Well, we're certainly happy to have you here if this is your first Sunday at Windsor Road. And I um, uh, wanted to uh, reiterate, and I'm so glad that Dwayne talked about uh, prayer for our missionaries. So you, uh, you won't be here for too many Sundays at Windsor Road uh, before you will just uh, kind of get it that we are about cross-cultural missions and we're about outreach and uh, we're about sharing uh, just our most precious treasure. So... Um, I uh, hope that you'll uh, uh, check out our uh, tables on display of all the missions that we support. Also, uh, in uh, the bulletin, there was, in addition to the yellow sheet of paper that you got, there was a blue sheet of paper uh, that talks about um, stateside missions, stateside missions. And uh, there is an uh, event that's going to be happening uh, this month here in town called Jesus Days. And not everybody can go to Peru, not everybody can go to the Dominican, but you can go to Restoration Urban Ministries and uh, be an ambassador for Christ. And uh, there's information about the schedule of the day and what all is uh, involved in terms of uh, ministry activities. And you can uh, put your email and uh, you can sign up. And if you just want to put those blue sheets, just take them to the Welcome Center and we'll... uh, uh, get back to you on that. But that's coming up this week. And, and um, one of the things that you'll notice both here for Jesus Days and also with our cross-cultural missions, and, and you see this as you're looking at the pictures up in the foyer, just a lot of pictures of kids. And so uh, the missions that we try to connect with are uh, connecting with uh, children because kids matter and we want to uh, we want to make sure that we're paying attention to them. And that kind of goes along with our current sermon series uh, that's happening today, and we're in a series called Family 101, and this morning we're going to talk about the kind of marriage that our children need to see, the kind of marriage that our children need to see. So uh, let me pray for us and we'll get to work. Our Heavenly Father, thank you so much for gathering us here into this room again. And we are hungry and we need uh, food for the soul. We need your word. So Heavenly Father, I just pray uh, that you would help me get out of the way as we uh, are placed around this table and you're at the head of the table and you see us each eye to eye, you look into our faces, and, uh, and then you get up from the table and you service, you service food. So help me get out of the way so that we can be fed, and so that we will be more and more like your son Jesus, in whose name we pray, Amen. The year was 1945, 1945, and in 1945, the average cost of a new house was $4,600, not bad, not bad. In 1945, the average price for a car, $1,020, which means that in 1945, The average price for a gallon of gas is 15 cents. (laughs) 
in 1945. I like shirts. The average price for a men's shirt was $2.50. Not bad. Pick up a dozen at that price. And did you know that in 1945, the computer was invented? Harvard University, Mark I. It was 51 feet long, weighed 10,000 pounds, and it uh, performed multiplication at the blazing speed of three calculations per second, right? And, and in 1945, one of our U.S. bombers creamed right into the Empire State Building. It was a foggy day. Huh? 1945. In 1945, Percy Spencer accidentally discovered that microwaves can heat food. Huh? That was a nice accident. And in 1945, there were, there were only 5,000 homes that had television sets. That wasn't a bad thing then. And, 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 but then later on, they figured out they could mass produce them for 100 bucks. All right? And the, uh, but the picture tube... Was just if you just kind of hold up the size of your bulletin, that's about how big the screen was, and it and it the big feature then was that you could actually see the screen in normal daylight. Ooh, huh? 1945, and in 1945, March 24th, exact, Francis and Alma Merrifield from our church were married. Ah, huh? well, that's right. Woo. And, uh, <laughs> and there's a picture of Francis and Alma in 1945, the year they were married, and here they are today, and uh, they are here, they're in the back row there, you can see Francis and Alma, and, um, I have something for you, Alma, so I just want to make sure you get this here. All the way back in the back. Here we go. Alma, that's for you here. Kind of a pre-Mother's Day. Francis, we know how you like cookies. So she gets the flowers and you get the sugar-free cookies, okay? Because <laughs> you got to watch it, you know? Here we go. 64 years. Isn't that good? All right. Did you hold on to that. Thanks. Has anybody in our church family in here been married more than 64 years? Anybody? So you're the marathon couple, right? You're the, you're the iron married couple. And Francis and Alma uh, met in high school. They were juniors. I had the chance to uh, interview them this week. And uh, so they helped me write my message today. And so, and uh, they met... Uh, um, Edison Middle School on Green and State Street used to be Champaign Senior High School. And so that's where they met. And Francis remembers the day that he met her. He was at school. He and some buddies were loafing around, as Francis put it. And Francis saw some girls, and then he saw this pretty girl. So he just walked on over to introduce himself. And Alma said, I couldn't stand him at first. He was too pushy, but he grew on me. <laughs> and Francis and Alma have lived through a very unique period in our country's history. Um, their childhood was during the Great Depression. And uh, so that means as children, they did not experience 
Things like martial arts classes, soccer camps, swimming lessons, or computer games. Okay. They, they didn't have desktops, laptops, iPhones, iPods, or iTunes. Imagine your father working on a farm, and your father is not the land-owning farmer, but rather your, your father is uh, one of the workers, and your father's paid $50 a month. That's it, 50 bucks a month. And then imagine it getting so bad that your father can no longer be paid cash. And so payment has to be in the currency of food, bread, milk, butter, vegetables. Alma said that they would sometimes get a whole hog butchered, but then it, but then it got so bad, then they, they didn't even get that. And then imagine your mother needing to stand in a bread line to wait your turn for food. And, and then imagine your father and your two brothers then getting involved in the Works Progress Association uh, government work program, and your father and your brothers would take off and get into a truck with a truckload of other people and would be gone all week working, and then they would come back, and you wouldn't get paid cash for that. You got vouchers. Vouchers. That's what it was like. And Francis' father worked for uh, Prairie Farms Dairy, and when his father lost his job, then they had to move in with Francis' grandfather for a time in Fisher. And the Merrifields told me that, you know, while possessions were few, uh, relationships were plenty. And it was a, it, they grew up in a time when neighbors just came over. They could just pop in, uh, use the side door when you come, you know, staying for supper, good, good. And uh, with no prompting whatsoever, Francis and Alma told me that life back then was simpler because there was not the competition of choice uh, hey, there were free movies Saturday night in Dewey. Evenings were spent with family where folk songs were sung by the mandolin. Alma said that the, you know, Alma commented and thought about that time growing up, and then she, she uh, just gave some wisdom. She said, the best thing for our, chi- for our children may not be to give them the things we didn't have. And... Um, and Francis and Alma were married when they were 18 years old. <laughs> I got to thinking about that. If that had been Ben, he'd be married two years by now. He's 20. Oh, my goodness. I said, what's that about? She said, well, a lot did. And you have to remember, our nation had not recovered from the Depression when uh, World War II came. It was a fearful and uncertain time. And we all lived in fear that Francis would be drafted and they'd had a child by then. Uh, And their culture was a get-it-done kind of culture. If certain things needed to be done, you just did it. You did it. And that kind of led me to a discussion about their strengths. And so I talked with each of them about their strengths when we met. And uh, I asked Francis about Alma's strengths in Francis says that Alma has a deep faith. Uh, her, she, she was well-churched, took the home seriously. She's a person of character, honesty, integrity. She's reliable. Uh, Francis said if Alma said she could do something, she's dependable to do it. She's very discerning, very discerning. And then I asked Alma about Francis' strengths, and she said he's always been a good provider. He's very considerate. He's not brash. And, and then she said, Francis has never believed that I should listen to him because I'm a woman and he's a man. And uh, he's been a great father, a good husband. He came from a church family, one that knew Christ. And, and uh, it was just a delightful time of learning for me from them. And uh, 
And I kept hearing a common thread uh, woven throughout the fabric of our conversation. And uh, it's a very important thread, a thread that I want to talk about um, this morning, a thread that a thread that if unraveled could also unravel deep committed marital love. It's a thread that prospective couples need. It's a thread that married couples must have, and it's a thread that our children need to see and feel. And it is the thread, it's the thread of a spiritually synchronized marriage. A spiritually synchronized marriage. It's a thread of a common spiritual foundation. And that's what God wants. That's what God wants our children to see. God wants our children to see that their parents are on the same spiritual page. And that's it's so very important because you need to understand this. I mean, if you at, at Windsor Road, we, you know, if we don't we don't teach or disciple or mentor short-term marriages. Okay? If you if you know, if you want a 64-year marriage, now we're into that. But if, I mean, we don't teach for three or four year marriages. We just don't. You don't need teaching if that's what you want. Just go out to the world. You'll learn plenty from the world. But if you want, if you want a, an iron man, iron woman, iron married couple marriage, that's, you know, we need more than what the world has to offer. We need what God, God's word talks about and God says, if you, want the, if you want to go the distance, you need, you need to be spiritually synchronized. And that's why we will read verses like 2 Corinthians 6, 14, where it says, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? This idea of a common spiritual ground appears in verses like 1 Corinthians 7, 39. A woman is bound to her husband as long as, as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she's free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. He must belong to the Lord. And then, you know, being spiritually synchronized in your marriage, you know, it's all over the Old Testament in Deuteronomy chapter 7. As Israel was about to take in Canaan and go into the promised land. And the Lord made it very clear that they were not to intermarry with the Canaanites because they were pagans. They didn't believe God. They were idol worshipers. And in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 3 says, You must not intermarry with them and do not let your daughters and sons marry their sons and daughters. Do not let this happen. See? Can you hear in those verses God's concern about marriages being spiritually synchronized? We need it and our children need to see it. Parents who are on the same spiritual page. That's what I want to talk about this morning. And uh, for the remainder of our time, I want to talk about what is, what is that? What does it mean to be spiritually synchronized? And, and why is that important and how, how does that apply to us here today? First, the what. Spiritual synchronization. Being spiritually synchronized means simply that you share the same, with your spouse, the same faith in the same way. That's what it means. It means that if you are interested in marriage, if you want to be married, you need to, you, your 
prospective spouse, you need to be on the same page in terms of what you believe and how strongly you believe it. It means you need to have the same spiritual beliefs, the same spiritual maturity, and the same spiritual intensity. You need to have a shared degree of commitment. In other words, a vi- even, even between believers, there needs to be spiritual synchronization. You know, a vibrant, spirit-led, radically committed Christian woman you know, should never settle for a nominal, half-hearted, comfortable Christian man who does little more than wear a cross-shaped pin on his lapel and mimic churchy jargon. I mean, what happens, what happens when the Spirit leads her to, to want to sacrifice time or money or go out on a limb of faith or change a career or a lifestyle? What happens when she wants to obey the Holy Spirit's leading But her less than spiritual spouse says, hold it, hold your horses. Why are you getting fanatical on me here? Why are you making waves? I don't like limbs. I like our life the way it is. No changes. God wants us to avoid this kind of exchange. And so he says, spouses need to share spiritual convictions. They need to share the same beliefs and dreams and hopes. They need to have the same spiritual compass and the same spiritual roadmap. They need to be on the same page. Being spiritually synchronized means to have the same faith in the same way. That's the what. And now the why. Why? Why does that matter? Why is that so important? Well, there are several reasons why. And, uh, And the first of which is that God wants us to avoid, God wants our children to avoid, A tragic mistake that can come by being transfixed on outward appearances. Outward appearances. My brother Rick um, used to work at an auto dealership and uh, went down to Tulsa one year and saw him do his job. And he gave me some insider tips on selling cars. Give me some of the insider rules of thumb, huh? And one of them is this. Once a decision has been made to buy a car, once a buyer makes the decision to purchase, the purchase usually occurs about 48 hours after first setting foot in the showroom. That was a rule of thumb. And, and so, therefore, my brother would work hard at closing the deal because he knew that in a very short time, the spending spell would soon pass. And that potential customer would wake up from his impulsiveness and sober judgment would take over. But before that, it was a game of impulse and action. I mean, have you ever met someone? Have you ever interacted with someone who's ever been in the buying mood? Huh? Have you ever been in one yourself? I have to both questions. Oh, yeah. Yeah, see, we, we tend to fixate on one item, one single feature of the car, you know? Oh, it has white paint. Oh, you know. Or maybe it's the dashboard or the sound system or the wheels. I mean, think about it. Think about it. A buyer comes onto the lot, sits in the car, listens to the CD, and then starts filling out loan papers. And why? Because they're in the mood. That's why. Forget consumer reports. Forget the repair records or the warranty information or the depreciation rate. Forget all of that. And what happens a few days later? You you look over that car in your driveway and you see something you didn't see before, like a scratch in the paint or a ding in the door or a rattle in the engine. Where did that come from? 
what was, was that there before? And then what happens when the, when the payment book is big as the family Bible comes in the mail? People say, well, it's just a car. No one would be that careless about a really important decision like a spouse. I mean, no one would be so foolish as to fixate on one or two features of another person without carefully scrutinizing other character qualities. I mean, who would do that? Who would get engaged and set a wedding date while their judgment was held hostage by their hormones? Who would do that? No one would do that, would they? Yes, friends, they do. They do. Because you see, there is such thing, there is such a thing as a, a marrying mood. And the marrying mood causes temporary insanity and the distortion of clear thinking. <laughs> and if it's the wrong car, you can trade it in. But if it's the wrong spouse, you know, the paperwork is just a little harder. And it's more emotionally painful. I mean, seriously, being on the same page spiritually intentionally narrows the field and protects us from being transfixed on outward appearances. Because the Lord, for Samuel 16, 7, does not look at the things that man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And that's one reason why we need to be spiritually synchronized. Another reason has to do with that God wants us to celebrate in marriage a common treasure. Francis put it this way, and I'd never heard it like this before. And it was so rich, I wish you could have been around the coffee table to hear Francis talk about it. But Fran Francis simply said, the purpose of marriage is celebration. The purpose of marriage, I said, elaborate. I, I don't get it. What do you mean? Francis said, well, when a sinner comes to Christ, is there not a celebration in heaven? Is there not? And so the joining of two lives into one Two redeemed sinners into marriage is God celebrating his deliverance, his salvation in, of two who have become one. And then the two, the husband, wife, one flesh, celebrate God's salvation with their very lives. You see, marriage, the purpose of marriage is celebration, celebration. You see, when you become a Christian, you, you, you start growing in your relationship with God. You realize that, that your relationship with God is about celebration. It's more than just a 75-minute experience in a room like this once a week. You find yourself hungry for God's Word. You find yourself wanting to pray more, read the Bible more. As you grow, you want to serve more. You want to be a difference maker in your culture, in your life, at work. In ministry, in missions trips, as you grow, you feed your mind with spiritual truth. You, you listen to CDs, you download uh, messages and music, and you begin to realize that the Lord is with you every day, not just one day a week. And then when you learn a new biblical truth, like teaching your children how to lose, teaching your children how to lose, you learn that and you, you want to share that, don't you? And you look for opportunities to sow seeds with your friends and your colleagues and your family. And God loves us so much that he wants, us, he wants to spare us the 
pain of an unshared, uncelebrated treasure. And so he says, look, you know, put appearances on, just take it off the burner for now. Put, take romance off the back burner. You know, take it off and look at the long view and make sure that you have someone with whom you can celebrate your most precious treasure, Jesus Christ. Spiritual synchronization. And then thirdly, God wants, wants our children, he wants us to be spiritually synchronized in family and in marriage because he, he wants triple braided relationships. That's, that's what Solomon tells us in Ecclesiastes 4.12. A person standing alone can be attacked and defeated but two can stand back to back and conquer. Three are even better, for a triple braided cord is not easily broken. I don't have to tell you that life is cruel and difficult, and there are financial disasters and occupational disasters and health problems and disease and sickness. And one of my teachers in school um, was involved in a church planting um, it was a church plant where he was the lead pastor. And the, and the mother church sent them out with the team. And it was, it was supposed to be the, you know, it was supposed to outdo the mother church. I mean, and it crashed. It crashed. And it just about devastated my teacher's faith. And, and his dark night of the soul, he said, he said, it was just like, he said to his wife, what am I going to do? And he just was about on the, on the uh, he was on the precipice of just quitting. And this is what his wife said. She said, I don't know what you're going to do, but for now, hang on to my faith because I believe. I believe that God is good. I believe that he loves us and is going to work through this experience. So hang on to my faith. I have enough for both of us. I have enough for both of us. Just let me believe for both of us. Wouldn't it be wonderful to have a spouse who can say in your, in your darkest, lowest hour, hang on to my faith. Hang on to my faith. That's what God wants. That's what God wants. He wants us leaning on one. He does not want one partner escaping reality through pills and chemicals and other partners. He doesn't want that. He doesn't want one partner screaming, I quit, I give up, I can't take it anymore. So he pleads with spouses and prospective spouses to be spiritually yoked so that they will depend on one another and lean on one another and have a faith braided around their relationship, a triple braided cord. That's what God wants. And then fourthly, God wants spiritually synchronized relationships because he wants us to impart common values. Common values. Common values to our children. This is, listen, this is no time for little Bobby to have to wonder why mommy says that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life and daddy uses Jesus' name as a curse word. It's no time. It's no time for little Susie to be set adrift by space-age parents who cannot agree or articulate for themselves what they believe about God, Jesus, the Bible, the afterlife, and thus proudly announce to Mary that she is free to tread water on a, forever on a sea of relativism. It's no time for that. That's not what kids need. Our children need their hearts shepherded. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23 says, 
says, guard your heart. Guard your heart. It's the wellspring of life. And the heart is not neutral. The heart is not neutral. The heart needs to be directed. And parents need to direct hearts. And they need to clarify what is right and what's wrong. And they need to direct and educate their children morally and spiritually. And both moms and dads need to teach the truth and model the truth and enforce the truth and love the truth and shepherd their children into the truth. But we cannot fake that, moms and dads. And, and, and our children, they, they pick up on our discrepancies. They know. And what do they do when the two primary authority figures in their lives don't agree upon the basics? What do they, what else, what do they have to go on? So, so if we're going to present a united front, we need to marry someone who worships the same God, who cherishes the same treasure, who lives life from the same compass and the same blueprint and taps from the same strength. Is that happening? Is it? Spiritual synchronization. This is the what and this is the why. And now the how. Now the how. Um, Let's talk about how this applies in our lives. And I know who's here. Okay? I know who's here. So, so if you are a belief, if, if you're not married and you're thinking about getting married, okay? If you're, if you're not married and you don't want to be married, then fine. You don't have, you don't have to share how you fill the dishwasher. God bless you. No, man. Man, but if you want to be married and you're not married and you're a believer, please, as your older brother and for some of you as your dad, don't get into a courtship with an unbeliever. I mean, don't go there. I mean, for the reasons that we just talked about, okay? I mean, we're a church that's into missions, but missionary dating is not a good idea, okay? <laughs> it's not. It, it's, usually, it's not good for the missionary, okay? Please. If you're a believer married to a believer, let me ask you some questions. What are you going to do with what you share? What are you going to do with what you share? What's your top priority as a family, What's your, tra- what's your top priority? You share a common treasure. What's your top priority based on that? What, if you could accomplish one thing as a family or in your marriage between now and July 4th, what would that be? Or, or between now and Labor Day, what would that be? What would it be? You're on the same spiritual page? Wonderful. How does that translate into action? How does that translate? Into- and and what, would, what would elevate the spiritual temperature of your marriage in the next 60 days? What would that be? To elevate the the spiritual temperature of your marriage. And and let me just just talk with you a little bit about this. A question like that, uh, someone quite possibly is thinking of an answer that may sound something like this. Well, what would really elevate the spiritual temperature of our marriage would be if we uh, just started praying and reading the Bible more every day. All right? And you know what? Great. I mean, that, that's great. And that sounds like something that an introvert would say. All right? You say, what do you mean? You, you don't believe in prayer and Bible? No, I do. All right? I, but I just, you know, I, you know I, I want to, us to avoid the, 
you know, the, the, I want us to avoid the, some of you say, I can't believe he's going to say this. I'm going to say it. I, I want us to avoid the myth of the almighty quiet time. You don't have a quiet time? Yes, I do. I do. But you see, you know what? Some of us are extroverts, and we grow spiritually out of that extroverted person. So for us, growing, and we do need prayer and quiet time, and we need to show up and serve somewhere and see, and put our faith to work. You see what I'm saying? So understand that you may be an introvert and so you're going to be recharged spiritually in, in prayer and in quiet time and that's wonderful and that's good. And your, your spouse, if your spouse is an extrovert, they may be recharged spiritually uh, you know, by getting out there and going and doing and serving, you know? And that, and which is right. Yes! Both. Both. Okay? Somebody needs to get that. Actually, don't get it. <laughs> you will never grow spiritually answering cell phones in church, right? <laughs> if you are a believer married to an unbeliever, okay? I can just hear this conversation at home if I don't clarify something. You go home, your unbelieving spouse says, well, how was the preacher today? And you say, well, he said I shouldn't have married you. I didn't say that. <laughs> I did not say that, okay? No, I didn't. That's not what I said, okay? No, no, no. That's a (laughs) no-no. But you have an unbelieving spouse, and, uh, you know, you want to exercise spiritual influence over your spouse for the Lord. Wonderful, of course, yes. And why? So that you can be on the same page, and you can celebrate, and... But you know what? The way to do that, the way to do that, the Bible says, is by winning your spouse over without words by your behavior. First Peter. When they see the purity and the reverence of your lives. See, you've got to be like Jesus who voluntarily laid down his life. And when you willingly lay down your life, you lay it down because you've chosen to do that. And that, friends, is what the Bible calls submission. Submission. Ephesians 5.21, submit yourself to one another out of reverence for Christ. It talks about voluntary deference. Listen, there's not a command in the Bible that orders me as a husband that it's my job to make sure Sarah submits. <laughs> it's not there. It's not there. That, that was Roman culture. That was Roman law. But biblical Christianity pleads with spouses to voluntarily defer, to live lives of self-induced cooperation. Self-induced cooperation, you see. Just like Jesus. Just like Jesus. Listen, even if you're a believer married to another believer, influencing and leadership in marriage is more about behavior than it is words. If I want my family to be more like Christ, I need to be more like Christ. I need to. And, and, and it's not I need to nag them to be more like Christ. Because who has ever been nagged into a closer relationship with Christ? I'd like to see that seminar. It's not there. I mean, it doesn't even happen when both spouses are believers. And I, and, I, and I hear the pushback. Yeah, but if I don't say something, then, you know, if I don't have to always be on my spouse, then they're just not going to get it done. And I feel like I always got to, always got to. And you know what? Here's the deal. Here's the deal. I love you. 
you're in the way. You're in the way. Get out of the way. God is trying to get to your spouse. And a man will take... See, God has a baseball bat, and he is ready to swing away at your husband, but you're in the way. Get out of the way so that he can swing away. See? Because a a man will take from God what he'll never take from his wife. Stop trying to talk your spouse into Christ and instead live with purity and reverence. And this leads me to a defining moment in Francis and Alma's marriage. One day, one day Francis realized that Alma was in love with someone else more than him and he confronted her about it. He said, Alma, you love God more than you love me. And she did not disagree. And then Francis remarked, and if I put God first, it won't hurt her feelings either. See? And Alma said, that's my expectation. I expect Francis to love God more than me. And when you love God more, then you will stop trying to, to get your spouse to Christ and instead focus on being Christ to your spouse. I asked them, I said, after 64 years, do you still get frustrated with each other? Alma said, yes. (laughs) This is what we have to look forward to. (laughs) Yes. And and then they both explained, oh, they both explained with such a mature sense of self-awareness. Alma said, you know, we'll be talking about something. And then then because, uh, Fr- because Francis' memory is failing, we'll have to talk about it again. And then I get frustrated, you know, and then I'll ask God to forgive me because he can't help it, I mean. Some of you are unbelievers and you've come here today. And, uh, and you are married to a spouse who, uh, you know, you are an unbeliever. You, don't, you haven't accepted Christ. You're not a Christian. I'm glad you came, and I hope you don't feel gang-tackled. I, I really don't. I really do. I mean, I... And that you have come means you're a loving spouse, I believe. And yes, it is possible to have a good marriage with someone who is not a believer. It is possible. But can I ask you some direct and gracious questions? I hope they come across graciously. One question is this. Do you want to be with your family forever in heaven? Do you want that? Do you want to spend eternity with the people that you love? You know, it is, listen, it's possible to have a wonderful marriage on earth, but then at death be eternally separated from that loving spouse. Because as important as a spiritually healthy marriage is in this life, it's not all of life. It's not. God, listen, God does not let people into heaven because they had a great marriage on earth. And people don't go to hell for divorce either. It's about Jesus. What have you done with Jesus? Because you see, the goal of life is not a happy, healthy marriage. It's not. The goal, if if that's your goal, you're shooting too low. The goal of life is to celebrate Jesus. To celebrate Jesus. 
And I asked Francis and Alma, I said, you know, you have been together for 64 years. Have you talked about the day that you won't be together? Have you talked about that? Oh, yes. Yes. And, and, and here is what they've talked. Their main concern, it's not about what, it, they have a relationship with God. They are possessed by Christ. Uh, heaven is theirs because of the cross. They're just concerned. They just want to make sure that if one goes first, the other's going to be taken care of until the reunion you know, they're just like Jesus on the cross with his mother Mary. That's their concern. And, uh, and, and they have a plan. They have a plan. They both know they're going to see each other in heaven. And they both know that marriage is momentary. But heaven is permanent. And they both know that in heaven, there will only be one married couple. Just one. Jesus and the church. That's it. Jesus and the church. And they both know that God has been giving us a glimpse of that eternal union even today. And he does it with a man and a woman. The purpose of marriage is celebration, the celebration of covenant-keeping love between Jesus and his people. The ultimate, the ultimate marriage union. Well, it's time for us to do business with God here. Um, Katie's going to come up. Why don't you all make your way up to the stage, Katie, and... uh, She's going to lead us. She's going to sing, and we're going to do business with God. And uh, can I just ask you, where are you on all that we've talked about? Where are you on this spiritual synchronization? Where are you? And where do you want to be? Where do you want to be?